You know, I know with a room this size, um, maybe not everybody has a Facebook or an Instagram, and even if you do, there's a good chance that, that we're not friends or we don't follow each other and, and one of those or both of those platforms that you're on. But about a week ago, I asked a question on my Facebook page and on my Instagram. and just asked people to respond. And the question was a simple one. It was, what does it mean to be in a relationship with someone? What does it mean to be in a relationship with someone? Now, many of you actually responded. I got a lot of responses on Facebook and then some on Instagram. I got some from people that are here. I got some from friends and people that I knew back home. I got some funny ones. And I had some that are actually pretty interesting. I had one person do a five-point bulleted list of what it means to be in a relationship. And then I had some people that just put a few words. But I love, I had, I had one person, what does it mean to be in a relationship with someone? They responded to me, ha, I wouldn't know. I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> Somebody else said, literally, I have no idea. And then we had some more serious ones where they said, you love someone and you want to spend time with them. It's not just knowing about someone but personally spending time with them. It's knowing somebody intimately, in other words, more than just a surface-level knowledge of them. It's consistent interaction and communication. I had to include that because that was my mother, in case she's watching. And then the two most used ones on this list were, one, this word trust and faithfulness came up a lot. What does it mean to be in a relationship with someone? Trust and faithfulness. And then the most used one is you're committed to each other. Point blank and simple. What does it mean to be in a relationship with someone? It means you are committed to them. You know, in a room this size, obviously there are a lot of different opinions in here. We have different opinions on things that don't matter, on things that probably do matter, on, on, on all sorts of things. We have different opinions. But for some reason, whenever it comes to what it means to be in a relationship, most people would agree with the same, same idea. To be in a relationship, we all would agree, is that there must be trust and faithfulness and commitment and knowledge of one another, communication, mutual effort, and the list could go on. But we would all agree, this is what it means to be in a relationship with someone. My whole point in asking that question and bringing this up now is do we bring the same definition of what it means to be in a relationship with someone whenever we talk about having a relationship with Jesus? Do we bring the same definition of what it means to be in a relationship with someone if we talk about our relationship with Jesus. In other words, based on these standards that we just talked about, of what it means to be in a relationship, would you say that you have a relationship with Christ? You know, it's interesting, actually. I have found that there are a lot of people who would not even budge to answer the question. If I were to say, are you a Christian? They would say, yes, absolutely. But if you were to look at their life this definition is not true of them in Jesus. And why is that? Is it possible, is it possible that many of us have missed what it means to follow Jesus? Is it possible that many of us have missed what it means to have a relationship with Christ? What we're going to be doing this morning is, is looking more specifically in, in, into what it looks like to have a relationship with Christ. And as I get started, I want to take you all the way back to the very beginning. You have Adam and Eve in the garden. Why did God create them? To cultivate and keep the garden. That's, you know, Genesis 2. That's right. But God created them for a relationship. He created them for relationship. It says that God walked in the garden 
with Adam and Eve. And what was the consequence of sin? There were other consequences, yes. But what was the consequence of sin? Separation from God. The relationship was broken. They were sent out of the Garden of Eden, and the relationship was broken. Why did Jesus come back? Why did Jesus come here? He came to take God and man who were separated and bring them back together. The biblical word is reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about this over and over again, that in Jesus, God was reconciling the world back to him. We can define Christianity in a lot of different ways, but you can't define it any more clear than this. Christianity is about having a relationship with Jesus. It's a relationship that once was broken, but is now restored. You know, this morning, I want to look at the second part of our mission statement. As we're going through our, our mission series, and just as a reminder, the mission of Westside Baptist Church is we exist to make disciples, to make disciples. First and foremost, we exist to make disciples by helping people know, follow, and serve Jesus here and around the world. If you weren't able to listen to the Make Disciples sermon from two weeks ago, I would encourage you to go and listen to that. It is pivotal because that's the last words of Jesus. We want to make that our first priority. But now as we talk about knowing Jesus, following Jesus, and serving him, we'll break those up in three different weeks. But this morning is going to specifically be about what does it mean to help people know Jesus? And if we want to help people know Jesus, we must first know what that means in general and then how to help people know him more and more. So I have three goals for this morning. Three goals. The first goal is this. I want to explain what it doesn't mean to know Jesus. I think this is crucial, what it doesn't mean to know Jesus. Secondly, I want to explain what it does mean to know Jesus, to have a relationship with him. And then third and finally, I want to talk a little bit about proof that the relationship is real. How can we have proof that the relationship is real? And, and we're going to pray, but before we pray, y'all, I can't say this any more clearly. In a culture where Christianity is spread, there are lies that will spread just as fast with it. And this sermon isn't the one that changed my life, but the basic ideas here are what led me to realize I don't know Jesus. And as a 22-year-old, for me to surrender my life to him. And so what I would ask you this morning is will you pray and will you genuinely say, God, show me my heart. Help me hear what you want me to hear this morning. Help me see what you would have me see and give me a heart that will accept whatever that is. So I'd ask you, let's pray together for a second. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much for your word. God, we praise you because even the goal in it is to teach us about you. How we can have a relationship with you. That's what it's about. It's about having a relationship with you. And Father, this morning as we talk about this sensitive and yet needed topic, Lord, I pray, speak through me. Speak through your word. Speak through Paul as Paul's going to share essentially his testimony and show us what it doesn't mean, what it does mean, and proof that it's real. God, help us listen to you this morning. Spirit, I pray you move this morning. I'm going to ask all this in your precious, in your holy son's name. Amen. If you have a copy of God's word with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 3 this week, and most likely again next week, actually. But we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3 as we look to answer this question of what does it mean to know Jesus? What does it mean to have a relationship with him? Now, as you're turning there, I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop of Philippians. See, Philippians is this book known as, as the book of joy, and there's a reason for that. Paul had a special relationship with the church in Philippi. 
You see, the church of Philippi is a church that Paul actually went and he planted. You see, if you go look in Acts chapter 16, while Paul is, is doing his missionary journeys, he's traveling around and preaching the gospel, God sends him to Philippi. And while he's there, there is nobody that knows Jesus or very short amount of people that know Jesus. Whenever he gets there, after he leaves, they have a church. And we see many, many years later, they actually have a fairly prosperous church. And the book of Philippians is Paul writing to them. Well, he's writing to them for a specific reason. You see, Paul is actually in jail in Rome as he wrote this. And the purpose of him writing a letter to the church of Philippi is because the Philippians actually sent him resources, money, and things for him while he was in jail in order for him to be taken care of. What does that actually mean? Well, whenever he was in jail, you have to, in many cases, you have to still fund your own food and fund your own housing if you were in certain types of jail. Well, Philippi, the church here, sent a guy named Epaphroditus. That's not good names if you're having kids. Epaphroditus, don't go there. But Epaphroditus, they, they send Epaphroditus to him, and he's writing back to the church of Philippi to say thank you. That's why this is such a joyous letter. He's writing to say thank you so much for sending Epaphroditus. I want you to know he's doing well. He's coming back to you. But as he's writing to them, he wants to take this time to talk about a few things that he's heard about that's happening in the church of Philippi. You see, in Philippi, there were some people that were coming in that were teaching false doctrines. And so Paul wanted to take this time to remind them of the essential doctrine of Jesus Christ. Specifically, he wanted to remind them of what it means to know him, what it means to be saved, what it means to have a relationship with him. And so let's look in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says this, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. So we see the first thing that Paul is doing. Paul's saying, I've already taught you these things, but I want to write them to you to remind you of this. He wants to remind them of this because there are people who are disputing what Paul is saying. Now look at, go on to the next verse, verse 2. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. It's kind of an interesting lead-in. I don't know if I've ever used any of these phrases in my life. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Well, the problem that's coming up in the church in Philippi is what does it mean to be saved? In other words, how can you attain salvation? What does it mean to have salvation? Y'all, the word salvation just means being right before God. When you ask about salvation, it means how can I be made righteous in God's eyes? How can I be counted as righteous in God's eyes? What must I do? And see, the people that came in and were discussing these things, Paul is speaking very harshly towards them, but there's a specific reason. Notice several things he says here. He says, look out for the dogs. Now, I'm sorry for those of you who are dog lovers and have pets, but dogs in Paul's day were not cute little pets or man's best friend. They actually were very opposite. Paul calls these guys dogs because dogs in the first century were nasty, unclean, and dangerous. Dogs often wondered where they didn't belong, messing up what was in their way. And Paul viewed these false teachers that were coming to the church of Philippi like wild dogs who were entering the church and damaging it. He says they are evildoers. In other words, what they are doing is wrong. And then he says something weird. He says, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. What does this even mean? What's he talking about? Well, to say that somebody is mutilating the flesh, this is the, the idea of this pagan worship practice that we can do something to appease a God. It was very prominent in Paul's day. But specifically, he's writing to a specific group of people here. There was a group called the Judaizers, and they were the ones who were coming into the church of Philippi, and they were causing all sorts of trouble. 
Because if you were to ask a Judaizer, how can you be saved? They would say this, in order to be saved, you must know Christ, but you also must be a Jew, and you must also follow the Jewish rituals, and you must also follow all the laws. So whenever Paul says those who mutilate the flesh, he's saying these guys are saying, if you aren't circumcised as a man, you cannot be a follower of Jesus. And Paul's saying that's wrong. They're saying Jesus is good, yes, but Jesus alone isn't enough. In order to be saved, you must be a Jew, you must get circumcised, and you must follow all of our customs. And Paul comes out so boldly and so strongly, like he does, because he wants to say, this is not true. It's not Jesus plus all these other things. And so he quickly refutes this. Look at what he says in verse 3. He says something kind of interesting. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He starts by saying, we are the circumcision. This is a weird way to describe it. Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a mark of being God's people. And what Paul's saying is, whenever he says, we are the circumcision, he's saying, we now have a mark that shows we are God's people. But this isn't a physical circumcision. It's a circumcision of the heart. Romans 2.28, Paul actually talks about this. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So whenever Paul's saying we are the circumcision, in other words, he's saying we are the ones who've had our hearts changed. It's not a physical need that you have, it's a spiritual need that you have. We are the circumcision, we are the people of God, as evidenced by what he says else here. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. It's His Spirit in us. We glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, we boast in what Jesus has done. And then he says, and we put no confidence in our flesh. In other words, no circumcision or other outward act is going to save us. No rule following saves us. We put no confidence in what we do, but all of our confidence for salvation is in what Christ has already done. It's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has already done. You see, the problem is these Judaizers were coming into the church and they were boasting in all of their accomplishments. They were boasting in who they were and what they had done. And they were saying, you have to have these things in your life to be able to say you're saved. And Paul's saying, absolutely not. And Paul goes into something very interesting here in verse 4. I don't think there's anything quite like it in Scripture except for one other spot where Paul talks about it. But look at verse 4. He just said, we put no confidence in the flesh. Then he says, though... I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. In other words, what is Paul saying here? Paul's saying if any of those guys want to boast, tell them let's get at it. Because I'm better. I did more. I'm a somebody, essentially. Now I would tell you, if I were to stand up here this morning and I were to talk to you and say a few phrases like this. Y'all, you don't understand how difficult it is to be famous. Like, you really just don't, you know? Like, you don't understand. It's a lot more difficult to be famous than you realize. And being famous really isn't all that it's cracked up to be. Most all of you would think, as you are currently thinking, how would you know? Right? Like, how would you know? You're not famous. You know, this became apparently, I mean, quickly real to me how unfamous I am. Uh, a few years ago, we had a leadership retreat of my college leadership team, and we had almost 40 of us. And one of the things that we did, because of how many people we have on the leadership team, we did mixers so people could get to know each other a little bit better. Well, the very first mixer that we did is my intern actually took some note cards, and he wrote names of different actors and actresses and athletes and other people that were famous on note cards. 
but he also included my name in there. And so what, the way the game works is as you're walking in the door, you're handed a note card that you can't look at. You put the note card on your forehead and you put a rubber band around it. And you have to go around to the room and you can ask one person at a time a yes or no question until you figure out who your person is. So you'd walk around and you'd say, is my person a man? No. Okay. So you go to somebody else. Is she an athlete? Yes. Okay. Does she play basketball? No. And so you have to figure it out until you understand who your person is. Well, I saw the person that had my name, and they were having a, a lot of difficulty trying to get things answered. Well, finally, she asked one guy, is my person famous? And the guy starts laughing and says, no. I was like, okay, thank you. That's a shot, right? But even worse is she goes, oh, Merrick. And I was like, okay, so I'm so unfamous. I'm the definition of not famous, right? So obviously, if I got up here and talked about how famous I was, it would be ridiculous, right? Because I'm not. But what you see Paul here, at initially, his statement looks arrogant. It looks extremely arrogant. Where he says, if any of those guys want to boast, tell them to come on. Because I am more. I have been more. And the reason that Paul could say that is because Paul was a somebody. He wasn't a nobody. He was a somebody. All these guys putting confidence in their accomplishments. Paul says, let's go toe-to-toe. And this is where we get to what it doesn't mean to know Jesus. What it doesn't mean to know Jesus is what Paul's about to boast in. He says, we put no confidence in our flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Look at what he says in verses 5 through 7. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, if I read through that list, some of that is is culturally bound, right? We need to really understand what is Paul saying here. I want you to see Paul pulls out seven reasons to boast and then says all this is loss. It means absolutely nothing. We don't put our confidence in these things for salvation. I want to break this down real quick. The first thing he looks at is religious observance and rituals. And I'll have all these on the screen, and we're going to come back to them. The first thing he looks at is religious observance or rituals. He starts by saying, I was circumcised on the eighth day according to the customs of Israel, essentially. Basically, I was born a Jew, and as the law of Moses says be circumcised on the eighth day, I was. So even at birth, I was already following the right path. He says, I have the right religious observance and rituals. The second thing he points to is his nationality. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. I've been a Jew since birth. In other words, I was born into the chosen people of God. You can't get better than that. The third thing he points to is I have a faithful heritage A faithful family. This is one that's harder for us to understand without explaining it. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. You see, there were two prestigious tribes in Israel. Just to remind you, there are 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob were the 12 tribes of Israel. There were two of them that were prestigious, and that was Judah and Benjamin. You see, back in the day, after David was Solomon, after Solomon, the kingdom broke up. It split, and you had 10 tribes that comprised the northern kingdom, and two tribes stayed together as the southern kingdom. 
The northern kingdom was wicked the whole time, went into exile very quickly. God basically did away with them essentially a lot faster. Over 100 years before, he, he pronounced judgment on the southern kingdom. But the southern kingdom remained faithful to God longer. Not only that, Benjamin was where Jerusalem was. So not only am I a Benjamite, I am from where the holy city even is. I'm from one of the most prestigious tribes in Israel. The fourth thing he points to is culturally. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, linguistically, I've got it. Culturally, I've got it. I was born in it. I was raised in it. I've walked the walk. I've talked the talk. I've acted and lived like a Hebrew because I was raised in this. Now he moves from not just talking about a religious background and his background, he goes to talk about his lifestyle and how he has room to brag here. The next thing he points to is he says, I was extremely religious, extremely religious. At the very end of verse 5, he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. Y'all, I cannot explain enough how impressive this would be. I cannot explain it enough. They were the most impressive and respected group in Israel. If you were to define them, you'd say this group is strict, disciplined, informed, knowledgeable. Yo, the word Pharisee literally means a separated one. And he says, I was a part of that. So what does it really mean to be a Pharisee? It means that you dedicate your whole life to live as you believe God would want you to live. I talked about this when we talked about making disciples several weeks ago, about rabbis in, in Jesus' day. Most likely, every rabbi would have had the whole Old Testament memorized. Think about that. The whole Old Testament memorized. This is the, just the beginning of the schooling for somebody who would be a rabbi. The Pharisees are the ones who paved the way for the rabbinic traditions. They laid the foundation for rabbinic schools. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I knew the law and I followed it to a T. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was separated. I was a separated one. So I was extremely religious. The sixth thing he points to is he says, I was extremely passionate. Extremely passionate. He doesn't just say, as to the law of Pharisee, but then he moves on and says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. In other words, I wasn't just somebody who knew all of these things. I acted on them. I did something about them. I was so zealous for God that I believed, and I believed this so much that I was willing to imprison and kill anyone who opposed this view. In other words, if I thought anybody was against God, I would do whatever I could to stop them. That's how radical Paul says he was. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I didn't just have the attitude and know all the knowledge. I had activity to back it up. I was extremely passionate. The seventh thing he points to is I was extremely righteous. He ends verse 6 by saying, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Y'all, there's over 200 commandments in the Old Testament that the Jews were called to follow. And what the Pharisees did is they took those commandments and they added commandments on top of those commandments to keep you from going to those commandments. In other words, if the commandment was don't walk through that door, they'd put carpet down and say don't touch the carpet. Then they'd build a wall around that and say don't get close to the wall. They added commandments on top of commandments. Specifically, there were 613 commandments they were called to follow. And Paul says, I followed them all. Blameless. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I am the poster boy for what any Jew would hope to be. He was the poster boy of what any Jew hoped to be. The highest aim in society would have been to be a Pharisee. And he says, I was there and I was blameless. I was more zealous than them all. But oddly enough, this was before he became a follower of Jesus. Once you look at verse 7 again, he says, Whatever gain I had, 
I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, he's saying all of my accomplishments didn't save me. All of that I did did not save me. Rather, Jesus did. Paul's saying I was the best of the best, but nothing I did did it. I count all those efforts as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. It's all about knowing Jesus. You know, in this passage, you have one of the scariest, scariest truths in all of Scripture. That you could have someone that checks so many boxes and yet doesn't check the only one that matters. Do you know Jesus? Why is this such a scary truth? It's a scary truth because Paul isn't the only one who talks about this. But also Jesus does. If you were to flip over to Matthew chapter 7, you don't have to. I'll pull up on the screen for you. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 says the exact same thing Paul is talking about here. In verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So not just somebody who says they follow me, but someone who actually has a life to back it up. They do it. But then even more so, look at verse 22. He says, on that day, on that day, meaning judgment day, he says, many, many will say, Lord, look at everything I've done. And look at the examples. I've cast out demons in your name. I've prophesied in your name. I've done many mighty works in your name. And what will Jesus say? I do not know you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. That's a scary passage. The scary part of it is in verse 22, the word many means a large or significant amount. In other words, what Jesus is saying, in other words, what Paul is saying here is there are going to be people who one day will be before the Lord, and if nothing changes before they get there, they'll say, God, look at everything I've done, and they'll say, but you don't know me. And it isn't like Jesus gave us a very unimpressive list. He gave us a list of something that none of us in here have done. Many mighty works in your name, prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name. If you've done that, raise your hand. No one has, right? What Jesus is saying is there's nothing you can do to earn your way into heaven. It's only by a relationship with me. These many had their confidence in the things they'd done, but they didn't have a relationship with Christ. Y'all would ask you this morning. Where is your confidence? If you say, I'm a Christian, if you say, I have a relationship with Jesus, I would ask you, how do you know? Where is your confidence this morning? I want to do something, and I want to walk back through what Paul said, and I want to modernize this list and show you what it doesn't mean to know Jesus. So if you were to go back to the list I gave you, number one, religious observance or rituals, it means it doesn't matter if you were sprinkled or dedicated in a church or baptized, that does not confirm that you know Jesus. If you talk about your nationality, if you say, I'm an American, used to, this idea was an American is a Christian. Obviously, that's changed much now, but there's never been a time where a nationality meant you were a Christian. It's not based on your nationality. You might say, well, my faithful heritage or my family, your family members are Christians. Or if your father was a pastor, grandfather was a deacon, mom teaches Sunday school, sister is a missionary, it does not matter about who your family is or your heritage. That is not why you have a relationship with Jesus. You can't put your confidence there. Fourth is culturally, and I think this is the biggest issue for people in our shoes who have been raised in or around the church, is so many people hang their hats on some of these things. Paul is saying it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. It doesn't matter if you went to VBS or youth group or if you prayed a prayer at some point or if you know all the stories or if you pray before meals or before you go to bed or if you read a little devotional or if you have a Bible verse in your Instagram bio or post verses on Facebook. It doesn't matter if you grew up and you know the terms justification, sanctification, saved, born again, etc. It doesn't matter if you were raised in it. That does not mean you are a Christian. 
If you go to extremely religious, you could say, but I'm an Awanas leader or a youth leader or a D-Now leader or a Sunday school teacher or a deacon or a pastor. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. You could say, well, I seek to live a moral life. I don't drink or do drugs or break rules or cuss. It does not matter. That does not mean that you know Jesus. Trust me, you can't have a better religious attitude than Paul did. Six, you could say, well, I'm extremely passionate. I try and read. I try and pray. I attend church all the time. I go on mission trips. I have feelings whenever I worship. That does not mean that you know Jesus. Well, you say, well, I'm extremely righteous. You might say, I've always been a good kid. I'm a respectable adult. I do the do's and stay away from the don'ts. I'm the best kid in school growing up. I'm the best person in my workplace. I may be an example of how to live in many ways, but that does not mean you are a Christian. None of these things put us in right standing before God. In other words, you may be passionate. You may have a great resume. You may have a lot of these things, but they are not what saves you. And for some of you, like Paul at one point, that may actually be what is keeping you from getting saved. You know, it's so easy in many ways to put your trust in what you've done. It's so easy in many ways to put your trust in, and say, you know what, I know that I'm saved because I've done this or done this or done this. But for Paul, this is what kept him from Jesus. And for many of us, it could be what's keeping us as well. The basic question of do you have a relationship with Jesus is what matters. Do you know him? One of the reasons I'm extremely passionate about this is, y'all, if you were to say a modern-day Paul, I don't stand up to how he did, but I have a pretty impressive resume growing up. I was a kid who was raised in the church, always there, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, extra stuff. Whenever I was eight years old, I remember telling everybody in the church, I would get saved if my mom would let me. She kept telling me I was too young. But I was passionate about this. You know, this is what I was supposed to be. And I remember finally I prayed with our pastor. I got baptized as a kid. After that, my life was do the do's, don't do the don'ts. And I did it well. Through junior high, through high school, I was a leader in my youth group. I wasn't perfect by any means, but, but I was a leader in the youth group. I tried to do what was right. I wanted to do what was right. I knew I needed to do what was right. I got into college. My first semester of college, I remember I went through this Experiencing God Bible study where I learned and grew more in my knowledge of God's word than I ever have before in my life. My second semester was the exact opposite where I really began to struggle and live in some of the college life, if you would call it. But that summer, I said, you know what? I, I know who I'm supposed to be. I know I'm a Christian. I need to go and do something now. So I went and worked at a sports ministry camp. I was there all summer long. Out of hundreds of counselors, me and one other guy got selected to teach advanced Bible study. I don't say that for me. I'll say that to prove a point later. Got selected to teach advanced Bible study. That's another summer while I was in college. I, I, I was a leader during the school year. I tried to be a leader at the local church in my college group. The next summer, I went to Dominican Republic on medical mission trips. The next summer, I was commissioned by the North American Mission Board to go be a summer missionary in Florida. For three months, I did ministry, going out to this little community center where we tried to reach people around with the gospel. About a year and a half after that, I found myself at my parents' house sitting there going, something is missing, and I don't know what it is. Something in my life is not right, and this doing, doing, doing isn't fixing any of it. Remember, I had a friend give me a book called Not a Fan by Kyle Adelman, and the basic idea of the book is, is he said in the beginning of it, I'm very fearful that many people in the church are fans of Jesus, but they're not followers of him. 
In other words, they want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it actually costs anything of them. You know, fans come and go based on how well the team is doing, right? But regardless, fans don't ever practice. Fans don't ever play. Fans don't ever have to put in the hard work. They're just there whenever it's good, not there whenever it's bad. They're kind of in and out. And I can remember as I began to read this, oddly enough, I began saying, somebody needs to hear this. And the more I read, the more I realized God was saying, Merrick, this is you. This is you. I remember one distinct moment I was reading, and I believe it's in chapter 4, where it says, fans of Jesus grow tired of trying to maintain this outer appearance that just doesn't match the inner passion. And, you know, I remember just started thinking, like, man, this, this maybe is talking about me. And it came to a head whenever, in chapter 7, he said, if you were to have a define this relationship talk with Jesus, if Jesus were to look at you and say, do you know me, what would you say? Do you know me? And, you know, I realized my whole life, I maybe was a poster kid. I maybe had done a lot of right things, but I did not have a relationship with Jesus. And I gave my life to Christ. It's the first time in my life I was broken over my sin. You see, we use this word repentance so often in church, but we confuse this idea with remorse. The amount of people that say, I know I'm a Christian because I feel bad whenever I sin is a lot of people. Y'all, everybody feels bad whenever they sin. God gave us a conscience for that very reason, to show us right and wrong. There is a law written in on our hearts. The time that you don't realize that is whenever you sear your conscience, as Roman 1 says. Whenever you just keep on sinning and ignore what God is telling you. It doesn't matter if you feel bad about your sin. Are you broken over your sin? You see, remorseful people feel bad about their sin, but they just continue walking in it. But this was the first time in my life I was broken over my sin. I said, God, I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to live for me anymore. I don't want to do it my way anymore. I was broken, and life change happened afterwards. Y'all, I remember as clear as day, the Lord telling me, Merrick, either live for me or stop saying you do. It's time to pick. Pick your side. And y'all, I got out of the shower that day because that all happened in the shower. And everything changed. The only way I know how to explain it to you is I went from being the supposed to guy to I found my joy in doing it. I stopped going to church because I was supposed to. I stopped making myself read the Bible because I was supposed to. I stopped praying because I was supposed to. I stopped going to church because I was supposed to. I stopped being on mission trips because I was supposed to. And I started saying, God, this is what I want to do. I want to live for you. You gave your life for me. I want to give my life to you. What does it mean to know Jesus? It doesn't mean you have an impressive resume. It means you have a relationship with him. Y'all, the scariest truth of all this is you can fool other people. But you can fool yourself. The Bible's replete with examples and the exhortation, do not deceive yourselves. Don't deceive yourselves. Several weeks later, whenever I finally realized what had happened, it took me two weeks to finally go, holy cow, I got saved. And I remember I walked in front of, uh, front of my church, and I went to tell everybody what had happened to me. And, and after I said, you know, I came to faith in Christ, I had most of the church say, we thought you were surrendering to ministry. Like, we've always seen that. We always thought that was supposed to be your path. And I go, no, I don't know Jesus. A week later, I had somebody call me, the director of the Baptist Collegiate Ministry at the college, say, I want you to teach a freshman Bible study. And I said, well, you need to know something. He said, what? I said, I got saved a few weeks ago. He's like, what? What are you talking about? I said, let's meet up and talk about it. The whole point that I share that is it doesn't matter what other people think or don't think. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? 
based on the definition that we talked about earlier, commitment, knowing one another, not just knowing about someone, but knowing him. Do you know Jesus? Which leads to the second question. What does it actually mean? What does it mean to know Jesus? I'll lay it out fairly fairly quickly from what Paul says here in three points. One, to know Jesus means your confidence is in him alone for salvation. Your confidence is in him alone for salvation. The way that we describe this most often is it is by grace alone. Remember, salvation is how can I be made righteous in God's eyes? Well, it's through Christ and him alone. Look at verse 7 and 8 once again. Paul just lays out this whole litany, his resume, and it says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Y'all, if you're an accountant in this room, this does not make sense. He says, I have all these credits, all these gains. And no losses, but all of my gains are loss. You know, the word here, whenever he says, everything I gained, I counted as loss. The word gain is plural. The word loss is singular. He's pointing, saying, everything that I had, all of my resume, everything I did, it's just a loss. It doesn't contribute to my salvation at all. Then he goes on to say, I count them all as rubbish. You know, our ESV guys here, and whatever your Bible commentator said, I'm assuming They put it lightly. What Paul says, actually, is this is all dog excrement, to put it even nicer than how he puts it. He says, it's junk. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't contribute to my salvation. I'll lose all of that for the sake of knowing Jesus. All my gains are loss, but I've gained Jesus. Y'all hear, Paul gives us a very important principle, and that's this. It's a simple formula. Everything without Jesus is nothing. Everything. You hear Jesus actually talk about this. Luke 9, after he says, if anybody wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And he says, what does it profit someone to gain the whole world and yet lose their soul? What does it profit them? Everything without Jesus is nothing. But Jesus plus nothing else is everything. It's everything. Paul's confidence is completely in this. In Jesus. How can we be made right in God's eyes? The question of salvation, how can I be saved? How can I be made right in his eyes? It's only through Jesus. Nothing we do. It's by grace alone. You know, as I even read this, I have it in my notes. I'm just reminded of one of my favorite hymns. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. All of Paul's confidence used to be in comparison with the people around him. But he realized that salvation is not about being better than someone or running harder than other people. It's about being right before God. It doesn't matter how spotless or blameless he was before other people. All that matters is he's spotless and blameless before God. And Paul recognized the truth that he could not become that on his own. He needed Jesus. It didn't matter all that he did. It did not contribute to his salvation. I love how he says, I count it as lost because the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, of knowing him. Your confidence is in him alone for salvation. It's by grace alone, not what you do. The second point for what does it mean to have a relationship with Christ is your confidence first, but secondly, it's your faith is in him alone for salvation. So your confidence is in him alone, but also your faith 
is in him alone for salvation. The way we typically communicate this is it's through faith alone. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, Paul continues. He says that he counts all that as rubbish in order that he might gain Christ. And then verse 9, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or obedience to the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. In verse 9, he outlines how can I be made right in God's eyes. First, it's by grace alone, but then he says the how. It's by faith alone, through faith alone. He says righteousness through faith in Christ. Righteousness from God, not from yourself or a fancy resume or what you've done. Righteousness from God that completely depends on faith. Once again, this topic of salvation, how can I be made right in God's eyes? Well, this idea of faith is you're placing your faith in Jesus that you can't do anything to be right in his eyes, but you don't have to because Jesus has already done everything needed for salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is probably the easiest way to sum all of this up into one verse. It says, for our sake, for you and for me, for our sake, he became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, who is sinless, he became sin in our place so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did all that was necessary for us to be made right in God's eyes. Salvation is by grace alone. You can't earn it. You can't do anything to repay it back. It's also through faith alone. It's placing your faith in Jesus that he did all that was necessary. I think this is why it's so hard for many of us to really understand or grasp this idea that I don't have to do anything to gain salvation. It's about placing my faith in Jesus. We must have faith in him and what he's done in order for us to be saved. We must place our faith in him. So what does that really mean? You know, to say you place your faith in Jesus, it means you lie heavenly upon what he's done. In other words, you rest, you rest heavily upon Christ. To explain this, I think it's really helpful to look at the old sacrificial system. Leviticus chapter 1. Leviticus chapter 1, it says this. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, he shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So what's going on here is the sacrificial system before Jesus came, for Jews to be made right before God, whenever they sinned, whenever they broke laws, they had to bring an animal and sacrifice an animal. But what's going on here is actually really interesting. It doesn't just say you brought an animal to the priest, you gave him to the priest, he said, okay, now my sin's atoned for. It says, no, you bring them to the priest, and it says you lay your hand on the head of the animal. You lay your hand on the head of the animal, and as the animal is killed, it symbolizes my sin is now on him, and he is paying the penalty for my sin. You know, the word here, to lay, to lay your hand on the head of a burnt offering means to rest in. It means to apply pressure on top of the head of the animal. In other words, resting and trusting in whenever that animal is killed, your sin is paid for. You are now accepted before God. In other words, you have made atonement before him. 
You now no longer are under the condemnation of your own sin, but you're made righteous in God's eyes. What does it mean to place your faith in Jesus? It means you rest in the fact that he has done everything needed for you to be right in God's eyes. It means you rest in the fact that it does not matter what you have done in your life. It does not matter how big of a sinner you have been. It does not matter the faults of your life. Jesus paid it all for you. You rest in him. You rest in him, placing your faith in him, and it's paid for. That's what it means to place your faith in Christ, trusting in the finished work of him. And when we place our faith in him, the Bible gives us a word justified. We are justified in God's sight. It means we are made righteous in God's sight. The easiest way to remember justified or the definition of being justified is it's just if I'd never sinned. It's just if I'd always obeyed. Whenever you're in Christ, your sin is no longer yours anymore. Jesus paid for it all on his back, and we're justified in God's sight by placing our faith, our trust, solely in him. So it's by grace alone. It's through faith alone. And then lastly, it's your salvation is in Christ alone. It's in him alone. Y'all, for time's sake, I won't read through all of it. But if you were to read from verses 7 through 11 of Paul's describing what he traded all those gains for, for this loss. In these five different verses, he says ten separate times the word Christ. 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 It's about Christ. It's for Christ. It's being in Christ. It was a loss for Christ. Everything Paul is saying, you and I are not saved by some outward act. He's telling them, not by circumcision or extra stuff or religious practice or whatever they were trying to teach. We are saved by Jesus alone. And you'll see this on the screen. This is the way that we would always hopefully describe salvation. To be saved means you have a relationship with Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Our goal as a church isn't just to get people to come here or to be around the church or to be a good person or to be a Bible scholar or to be a Sunday school leader or be a deacon. Those things are great, but our goal is to help people have a relationship with Jesus. It's not about being good. It's about being godly. There's a massive difference. And we're called to help people have a relationship with him. So what does it mean? What it doesn't mean to know Jesus. What it does mean to know Jesus by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And the last question, or last point, is how do you know it's real? How do you know it's real? I'm not going to try to cover the topic of assurance in the last five minutes of a sermon. But whenever you think of the word assurance, there's a lot of things that people attribute to assurance that just are not true. We'll talk some about it next week. But if you're going to ask the question of how do I know I really have a relationship with Jesus, I would ask you, what does your life say? We've already talked about what it means to have a relationship with someone. What does your life say? Does it show that you have a relationship with Christ? Let me explain my point a little bit more. Let's say you have a friend. Hopefully all of you have a friend. But let's say you have a friend come to you this week. And let's say on Thursday, y'all go and eat lunch together. You sit down, you're eating lunch with them, and you say, how was your week? And they're like, man, it's been awful so far. You go, okay, well, why has it been awful? Tell me about it. They're like, well, on Monday, you know, three days prior, On Monday, I was actually north of town, passing by Pascal Trucking Lines, PTL, and then I had a, my tire blew. Like, okay. He's like, you know, yeah, so I pulled off to the side, I got out, I jacked up the car, I went to change the tire, and my jack fell, and literally the car fell on my arm. You're like, oh man, that's rough. And as he's saying that, you're looking at his arm, and you're like, you're eating 
fine right now, so you kind of whatever. He says, that, that's not the worst part. The worst part is once I got out, I, I pulled myself back and I fell into the road and an 18-wheeler just hit me. You're like, okay, an 18-wheeler hit you. Yeah, this is incredible, right? If somebody's telling you that, you're going to very quickly recognize something's off, right? If somebody gets hit by an 18-wheeler, they don't eat lunch with you three days later, right? If they're still here, they're going to be changed forever. But hear me, Jesus is much bigger than the 18-wheeler you will ever find. Whenever Jesus comes into your life, you are different. You are changed. You are transformed. The Bible does not talk lightly about this. It says you were dead, and now you are alive. You were living for yourself, and now you're living for Jesus. You were lost, and now you are found. Whenever you come in contact with Jesus, everything changes. Now, I want to be clear. It doesn't have to be this magic moment for everyone. I'm not placing it on that. But there does need to be a moment where it's obvious you were going one direction, and then you were going another. Unless you came to faith in Christ at a really young age, and you say, you know what, for the most part, I really have Seek to grow in my relationship with Jesus. You really need to think about when did everything change? When did it change? Has it ever changed? How do you know you really have a relationship with Jesus? Well, I would just ask you, look at your life. I want you to notice how Paul talks about this. And even this gives us some teaching on assurance. Verse 7 and 8. I want you to notice the difference that he uses here. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted. That's past tense. I counted back then. When all this happened, I counted this as loss for the sake of Christ. But notice what happens in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. What do you say? Back then, I made a decision. Back then, I made a commitment. My faith is no longer in myself and what I do. And he says, that's the faith on which I still stand. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I made the commitment back then, and I'm still walking in it. To be more clear, it wasn't a one-time decision for Paul where he prayed and then got baptized, and then that was the extent of it. It wasn't just a Christian experience that made him live differently for a short amount of time before it fizzled out. It wasn't just a decision he made once but then didn't live it out. It wasn't something he said he did in the past. Rather, it was a present reality for him. It was the present reality for him. Is I made a commitment to follow Jesus back then, placed my faith in him, and I am still doing so. If you were to take just a normal definition of what it means to have a relationship with someone and apply that to Jesus, would it be true of you? You know, unfortunately, many of us, many of us have made a grand statement in the past that my guess is if you were honest with yourself, might not be true of your life. As humans, we're known to make grand statements. I'm going to eat better this year. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to start doing this. And if we don't do them, we never act like we did. Yet with Jesus, for some reason, we can say, you know, whenever I was this age or at this time, I gave my life to Jesus. And then we can live differently and yet still point to that time and say, I know it was real because I did that. Paul doesn't lean on the past. He says, I know I'm following Jesus because I'm still walking in faith in him. Now, understand, once saved, always saved. We always should preach that doctrine. But I think for us, we need to recognize if you are saved, then you are already saved. Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? Salvation is all about knowing Christ. If we don't know him, if we don't have a relationship with him, then we are not saved. Remember, this is why Jesus came in the first place, to die for us, yes, why? So we could have a relationship with God. 
He didn't just come back to save us from things. He came to save us for something. Many of us think, you know, I know I'm saved because, you know, I got saved because I didn't want to go to hell. You know, I wanted to be with God in hell. I wanted to be saved from separation. But we might not have recognized that whenever you're saved, you're saved for something. Not just from hell or from being away from God, but you're saved for a relationship, to walk with him, to live for him. God has a mission for us whenever we become followers of his, and that's to live out our relationship with him. In other words, salvation is about knowing Jesus and having a relationship with Christ, not just about having our sins forgiven so we can go to heaven whenever we die. The goal of salvation is to know Jesus and to become like him until we eventually go to be with him. Y'all, life itself is about knowing Jesus. So much so, John 17, 3, Jesus says this in his final prayer. He says, and this is eternal life. It's what it's all about, that they may know you. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All of life is about this, knowing Jesus. The life of a believer is about knowing him, continuing to grow in him in order to know him more. This was Paul's aim, and this was his proof as he ends in verses 10 and 11, and he says this. He says, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, verse 10, that I may know him. Like, wait a minute, don't you know him? Yes, but this is what my life is about. It's about knowing him more and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection. In other words, I died to my old self and I'm living in my new self. I want to know that fully. I want to continue to die to my old self and live for Christ. I want to know him more. He says, I want to have fellowship in his suffering. In other words, I want to take up my cross. Whatever it takes to know Jesus and follow Jesus, that's what I want to do. He says, by any means possible, attain the resurrection from the dead. He's saying, until one day I rise to be with him. I want to know Jesus. This is what the Christian life is all about, knowing him. Having a continual relationship where we seek to know him more and more. Y'all, the reason people in church should tell people, read the Bible, pray, Come to church is because these are aspects of a relationship. If I don't ever let God talk to me or I talk to him, it's hard to have a relationship. Once again, do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you know him? Our goal isn't to get people just to come and be around here or to get some position in the church. It's to know Jesus. And we want to help them continue to grow in their relationship with him. We exist to make disciples by helping people know Jesus. And so the question this morning is that. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? If so, are you continuing to pursue him and you grow in your relationship with him? Our goal here at Westside is to help people know him and follow him more fully. I just want to ask you at this time to bow your heads. I want to ask you to bow your heads and I want to ask you to picture something. I want you to picture an empty room. Just imagine in that empty room, Now see two chairs that are faced one another. Imagine you're sitting there and Jesus is in the other. If Jesus were to say, do you know me? How would you respond? Based on your life, do you know Jesus? Better yet, if you were to turn that question around and ask Jesus, Jesus, do I know you? Do I have a relationship with you? What would he say?
You know, as they're playing this morning, I just want to ask you first and foremost, where's your confidence? Maybe this morning, as you're listening, you, you come and you say, I know I don't know Jesus. What I would tell you is you have done nothing, nothing that can keep him from you. I'd ask you this morning, will you just place your faith in him? It's not a special prayer that you have to pray. You just say, Jesus, I believe in you. Say, I don't want to live the way that I'm living anymore. I don't want to live for me, trusting in my, myself or living in my own way. I want to live for you. Maybe this morning as I ask you that question, where's your confidence? Maybe you say, you know what, I, I know I have a relationship with Jesus. But I've taken a lot of pride in what God has done to me. I take pride in my Bible knowledge. I take pride in teaching or, or being on a stage or whatever it might be. Would, would you just confess that to the Lord and say, Jesus, it's all about you. Another question I would ask you that I think needs clarification for, for people is, when did the relationship really begin? When did you really give your life to Jesus? If this morning you say, I, I have a relationship with him, I would say, when? You know, for some of you, maybe this happened at some later point and you have not been baptized as a follower of Christ, I would tell you, you need to be obedient in doing that. If you say, Merrick, I know I'm a Christian, I would ask you, are you still placing your faith in him alone for salvation? Are you seeking to grow in your relationship with him? Do you genuinely desire to know him more and more like what Paul is saying here? His aim is just to know him more and more, to continue to die to his old self and live for Christ. Do you know Jesus? As we're playing this morning, I just ask you to keep your head bowed and eyes closed and just think and reflect. How do you need to respond this morning?